Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. Amen. Well, we're thinking about this uh, process of gracious living and uh, how we receive that sort of training and insight and thinking about the possibility that the Sermon on the Mount is, uh, as Matthew structures that gospel and gives us that introductory chapter in chapter 4 and talks to us about kingdom life and then opens chapters 5 through 7 of the teaching of Jesus uh, about kingdom life. And so we're spending uh, a few weeks here as we lead up to the holidays. I know it's hard to believe, but uh, this is our last little series before Advent. I don't know how many shopping days that is, but uh, it's a finite number now. So. so just three questions that I want you to think about this morning. I'd like for you to think about this. Is this descriptive of me? Is this descriptive of me? Second question, how often? Third question, isn't this our commission? Isn't this our commission? So in Acts 1-8, we have Jesus speaking to the disciples at the moment of ascension. So these kind of these last words that Jesus is sharing with his disciples. And he says to them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses. First in Judea and then Jerusalem and then Samaria and then to the very ends of the earth. And so in this closing moment of Jesus' ministry on earth, he says to his disciples and to us, you are to be my witness. You and I are to be witnesses. And, and when I say that to you, what does that trigger for you? What thoughts run in your head? If you grew up in the 60s and 70s, probably when you're asked that question, you know, what does it mean to be a witness or your commission to be a witness, we, we tend to have a very specific methodology because the 70s, and the great Jesus movement, everybody remember all that? Okay, older people help the younger people. So we kind of had this social revolution of the 60s, and sort of towards the end of that, we sort of had the Jesus movement, and into the 70s, we had the big, powerful Jesus movement. And, uh, and uh, in that, you know, we started to develop a lot of methodologies for being a witness. And so maybe it's the Kennedy plan, maybe it's the Roman road, maybe it's the Billy Graham method, what... Whatever. Now, now, that methodology is useful. It's always good for a believer to know and to be equipped in a way to help someone, you know, find faith in Christ. And that generally involves some specific things to know and understand. But I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about in Acts 1.8. I don't think he's talking about that sort of methodology because he doesn't teach his disciples a methodology. He doesn't offer them an outline. He has a very different concept of what witnessing might mean. And so part of the conversation today is to just sort of get inside of that and to think about what that might look like. Everybody doing okay? Doing well? Good. Welcoming our folks who are uh, on live stream with us. And uh, we're so glad uh, week to week we have so many folks who join us. This is their opportunity to be with us at church, and we're glad you guys are here. And so... Uh, <laughs> There's a small child waving goodbye to me. <laughs> so we're thinking a little bit. So I'm going to do this thing now. I'm going, to, I'm going to give you a phrase, and I'd like for you to complete the phrase. And then I have a follow-up question after that. How to win friends and... 
All right. If you knew the answer to that, how to complete that phrase, raise your hand. Nice. There's a definite age demographic there. <laughs> and uh, so here's the follow-up question. That was a part of what course? <laughs> yes, the Dale Carnegie course. That's right. How to Influence and Influence People was the title of a course that was prominent in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. That was a course in how to basically be effective in whatever you're doing. It's generally thought of as a sales sort of course, but uh, it actually was much, much broader than, than that. And so the Dale Carnegie course, How to Win Friends and Influence Family. Uh, how many of you actually went to a Dale Carnegie course at some point in your life? One of you. Good. Excellent. <laughs> Clearly, that's why they don't do them anymore. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so in case you didn't get to go, I'm going uh, to give you in a nutshell the, the whole class. Uh, or you can buy the book later. Here you go. Techniques to handling people. Don't criticize, condemn, or complain. Do you remember our three questions? Is this descriptive of you? How often isn't this our commission? Give honest and sincere appreciation. Arouse in the other person an eager want. Six ways to make people like you from Dale Carnegie. Become genuinely interested in other people. How often is this descriptive of you? <laughs> Smile. Remember that a person's name is to that person the sweetest and most important sound in any language. Be a good listener. Encourage others to talk about themselves. Talk in terms of the other person's interests. Number six, make the other person feel important and do it sincerely. Not bad stuff. <laughs> On criticism. Criticism is futile. That's nice, isn't it? Criticism is futile because it puts a person on the defensive and usually makes them strive to justify themselves. Criticism is dangerous because it wounds a person's precious pride, hurts their sense of importance, and arouses resentment. Any foolish person can criticize, condemn, and complain, and most foolish people do. But it takes character and self-control to be understanding and forgiving. Is this descriptive of you? How often? Isn't this our commission? On dealing with people. When dealing with people, let us remember we are not dealing with creatures of logic. We are dealing with creatures of emotion, creatures bristling with prejudices, and motivated by pride and vanity. I mean, not us, but the people we have to deal with. Yeah. On influence. The only way on earth to influence other people is to talk about what they want and show them how to get it. On the secret of success. If there is any one secret of success, it lies in the ability to get the other person's point of view and see things from that person's angle as well as from your own. That's pretty good stuff. I mean, just a sales course from a few decades ago. 
But really broader than that, I mean, anytime you put the label on it like this, how to win friends and influence people, you're, you're biting into something that's rather large. And I was thinking about this, and it seems to me that long before Dale Carnegie had a course, Jesus had a course. And it was called the Sermon on the Mount. And the course was about how to win friends and influence people. And it was about our commissioning as witnesses to Jesus Christ. And he didn't have in, in mind a methodology, but he had in mind a lifestyle. He had in mind something that each of us participate in, in a very intricate way. And so what I want to do is this crazy unheard of thing right now, and that is I'm going to read excerpts from the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to ask these three questions. Is this descriptive of you? How often? Isn't this our commission? Isn't this who we are created and called to be? Matthew 5, 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You're the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven." Is this descriptive of you? How often? Isn't this our commission? And for a moment to stop and think about this, because we've talked about this last week, sometimes I think we believe that that Jesus is saying, if you do all of these things, then you get something. You know, if you are the pure in heart, then you get... But we talked last week about how this is phrased and sentenced. It's, oh, the blessedness of, or participating in the joy of the gods are. You're not waiting for something. And here he says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, which, by the way, is a very fundamental piece of this sermon, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And we read that and go, oh, so if I do something really, really good, eventually I'll get to enter the kingdom of heaven. That is not what he's saying. He is saying, if you are participating in this way, you are the kingdom of heaven. (laughs) You are it. It's not coming someday. It is here now as we participate as we become citizens and live out that process. Second section, Matthew 7, 1. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they will trample them under feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Weird. Super weird. Nobody has that printed on their house somewhere. Do not judge, 
Is this descriptive of you? How often? Isn't it our commissioning? Matthew 7, 15. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Is this descriptive of you? How often? Isn't this our commission? And so sometimes I think we do this. And I got a lot of comments last week about doing all of the Beatitudes in one Sunday. (laughs) People are like, whoa. That's like an eight-week series. Yeah. Well, we've done them that way. And you certainly can take that kind of time with them. But, but isn't it interesting that Jesus doesn't commentate? <laughs> he just tells them. And, and I think one of the things we lose in the Sermon on the Mount is we tend to chop it up and stretch it out. <laughs> and we forget that there's a cohesive nature to what he's saying. And so as he comes down to the end of this conversation and he says, Listen, not everybody who calls me Lord, Lord, is a part of the kingdom of heaven. Some people, listen, they talk a lot about being religious, but the, but the gracious living is absent. And the call, the commission to be a witness, to be a gracious witness, is woven into this understanding. What does it mean? And, and I want to highlight seven things that I think stand out uh, in that process. Number one, be salt. You're the salt of the earth. I love to talk about salt. You know, salt was the original currency of the world. The word salary comes from the root word salt. Did you know that? Yeah. Okay, this one's free, but this is very important. The word salad has a root word of salt. You cannot throw lettuce and junk in a bowl and call it salad unless you salt it. Can I get an amen? Yep. Because it's not salad till you put a little salt on there. It's also not fit to eat, but that's a whole different thing. Unless you put salty bacon and then that's okay. You are the salt of the earth. Salt is a funny thing, isn't it? I mean, it, it is noticeable by its absence. It serves all kinds of layers of function. So when you go to a movie and you put that butter on that popcorn, you and I both know that is only the glue that allows the salt to stick. You guys know that. And I want to tell you, there is nothing like a glistening bowl of popcorn with visible salt present. That tells you you're going to enjoy the movie no matter how bad it is. And that's a good experience. That's a good salt experience. Popcorn is a very good salt experience. But so is a chocolate chip cookie. And that's two very different things. And, and you know, the thing is, you know, if you have a chocolate chip cookie and it doesn't have salt in it, you notice it. I mean, I still eat them, but you notice. <laughs> you're like, that's not as good. 
Because salt enhances flavor. You are the salt of the earth. Your presence, demeanor, attitude, words enhance the situation. Sometimes it's savory and sometimes it's sweet, but it enhances, it adds what's missing. That people walk around in life going, this life is a little tasteless. It's a, it's a little, something's missing. I don't know what it is. Oh, I've been hanging out with my friend and now I, I get it. Now the thing that was missing is present because they're the salt of the earth. They're adding flavor so that joy tastes better when it's shared in a context where we are providing that sort of enhancement. Ironically, so is sorrow. So that we are to be the salt of the earth. Is this descriptive of you? To provide that missing element that brings a tastefulness to whatever's going on. Because salt is like that. William Barclay, in writing about this passage, he just goes on a rant. I mean, he just... He just clearly has a bee in his bonnet. Is that a, is that a worthwhile phrase? A burr in his saddle. Is that better? I don't know. None of them are quite current. Listen to this. He just goes off. The tragedy is that so often people have connected Christianity with precisely the opposite. They've connected Christianity with that which takes the flavor out of life. In his hymn to the Prosperine, Swinborne writes these words, Thou hast conquered, O pale Galilean, the world has grown gray from thy breath. Even after Constantine had made Christianity the religion of the Roman Empire, there came to the throne another emperor called Julian, who wished to put the clock back and bring back the old gods. His complaint, as the playwright Heinrich Ibsen puts it, was, Have you looked at these Christians closely? Hollow-eyed, pale-cheeked, flat-breasted all. They brood their lives away, unspurred by ambition. The sun shines for them, but they do not see it. The earth offers them its fullness, but they do not desire it. All their desire is to renounce and to suffer that they may come to die. (laughs) Like I said, he's on a rant. (laughs) As Julian saw it, Christianity took the vividness out of life. The American judge, Oliver Wendell Holmes, once said, I might have entered the ministry if certain clergymen I knew had not looked and acted so much like undertakers. (laughs) Robert Louis Stevenson once entered in his diary as if he were recording an extraordinary phenomenon. I have been to church today, and I am not depressed. (laughs) This has something to do with being a gracious witness. You are the salt of the earth. Wherever you go, whatever you're doing, whether it's work, whether it's at home, whether it's making a meal, whether it's sitting down to eat, whether it's a conversation, whether it's listening to somebody who is hurting, you are filling in that thing that is lacking. You are enhancing the flavor of that moment. Isn't this our commission? Who we were called to be. You are the light of the world. Be light. Light dispels darkness. Light clears up the confusion and it takes away the fear. Light allows the cheerful ability to see clearly what once was menacing. 
In the light, obstacles become visible and are easily avoided because of our influence together. Light provides the means by which life opens up. Light allows the food to get prepared and the meals to be eaten and the games to be played and creativity to be launched and friendships to be engaged. You're the light of the world. I think if we stopped for a minute, we said, well, how, how do you summarize that? You can just go right back and think about these things that Dale Carnegie told us earlier. <laughs> Don't criticize, condemn, or complain. Give honest and sincere appreciation. Arouse in the other person an eager want. Become genuinely interested in other people. Smile. Remember that a person's name is to that person the sweetest and most important sound in any language. Be a good listener. Encourage others to talk about themselves. Talk in terms of the other person's interest. Make the other person feel important and do it sincerely. You are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world and you are doers of good deeds. Let your light shine in such a way that they see your good deeds. It doesn't say, as long as up in your head you think something is happening that's good, then you're golden. It says, let your light shine in such a way that they see your good deeds. That there is actual attentive behaviors happening that are impacting and changing the lives of the people around us. It's not just happening in our heads. It's actually literal ways in which we have tuned in to the needs of the people around us. In fact, Jesus gets very specific. You are to treat others the way you desire to be treated. You, you are to have a mindset of sensitivity because it's hard to be the salt of the earth if you don't know if it's a savory situation or a sweet one. It's hard to understand how to be light if you don't understand the nature of the darkness. And it's hard to be a doer of good deeds if you haven't created a sensitivity about what it looks like for someone to receive a good deed. Some of us think if we just tell people what we think about them that we're doing a good deed. I'm just telling you the truth for your own good. <laughs> Doesn't feel like that. Doesn't feel very gracious. Doesn't feel like a gracious witness. We are the doer of good deeds. And notice the nature of the good deed. The nature of the good deed is not that it calls attention to us, but that it points people that they see your good deeds and give praise to your Father in heaven. That it lifts their sense of the goodness of life. Whew. Restores their faith in humanity. I don't know if you've observed this, but we live in a depressed culture. It is a sad place to traffic People have very low opinions of other people. And we're supposed to be people who are stepping into that darkness and being salt and being light and doing good deeds so that their spirit is lifted and they give praise to your Father in heaven. Is this descriptive of you? How often? Isn't this our commission? Isn't this what we are invited and called to be? So we are doer of good deeds. Be accepting of others. Do not judge 
are you too will be judged. That's, that's kind of self-explanatory, isn't it? Do not be judgmental of others. We all have to work on this one, don't we? I don't, I don't judge or criticize people when I'm driving. But I do commentate a lot. You understand what I'm saying? There's a subtlety to it. There's kind of an art to it, you know. But, you know, you, somewhere in that commentating, there's a nature of going, they're not as smart as I am. They're clearly not as good of a driver as I am. They're clearly not getting it the way I get it. And that's just driving. Like, you want to test your Christianity? You just drive right out of here. You go right down to the corner over there to that four-way stop. You sit at that four-way stop. That'll test your Christianity. You just want to have a hammer. You just want to walk around and go, dink, don't do that anymore. It's not the way these things work. That's not how this works. Like, there's a four-way stop. Isn't it interesting how quickly we jump into this place where we're judging others and how we are invited to not do that and those are people we don't know those are people we don't have any relation costing us nothing we're going to get through the four-way stop in a matter of seconds most of the time we'll get through the four-way stop unless it's a trader joe's that's utter chaos is what it is but how quickly we jump into this and with the people we live with and we know Boy, we judge. Sometimes people say, what's the, what's the hardest thing about being in one place as a pastor for 31 years? Well, one of the things is you never live down your mistakes. They just follow you around the whole time. I'm convinced that there are some people who still see me as the same person I was when I walked into this place for the very first time. And, and you know, I've never been allowed to grow up. And then I think, but that's what I do to my kids. I assume I froze them somewhere, you know, when they were 14 with certain attitudes or behaviors. And then I still see them coming up. That's my narrative that runs in my head. And then I still see that narrative playing out. And I go, that's just like what, you know, I saw. You always have a And isn't that being judgmental? Not allowing them to grow up and outgrow and not be reminded anymore. That's a piece of being judgmental. It's very vivid. I think people were laughing when Jesus said it. Why do you try to get the speck of sawdust out of somebody else's eye when you have a plank in your own eye? A lot of hyperbole going on in this little phrasing, which is good because he gets them laughing, and then he says, you hypocrites. <laughs> like, you know. Dale Carnegie says, criticism is futile. Because it puts a person on the defensive and usually makes them strive to justify themselves. Criticism is dangerous because it wounds a person's precious pride and hurts their sense of importance and arouses resentment. Any foolish person can criticize, condemn, and complain, and most foolish people do. But it takes character and self-control to be understanding and forgiving. Number five, be discerning. Don't give to dogs what is sacred and don't throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Um, I don't know what this means, but I knew I'd have to talk about it. 
that's not true. So Jesus basically now takes this to the next level. And so what he says is, listen, you may bring something precious to you, and, and if you take those out and you throw them before the pigs, they don't want your pearls. They want food. And if you give them pearls instead of food, they will turn on you and attack you. So don't do that. And in the context of this teaching, what he's saying is, not only are you to be salt and light, you're to be discerning. You're to understand when and how and what to offer to others as a part of this gracious witnessing. You're even responsible for how it's going to land with the other person. Because your precious jewel may not be precious to them. So you got to be so sensitive that you're not just going around tossing your pearls. And by the way, he's not saying that people are swine. He's using the illustration. If you go feed the pigs and you give them pearls and not food, they will attack you. So don't go feed human beings things they don't want or don't need. Because that's not being a gracious witness. And how many of us have created hostility towards Christianity by being pushy about our witness? Instead of being gracious, salt, light, doers of good deeds. We are to be discerning. Number six, be aware of all things false. Watch out for false prophets. I don't know about this, if you know this, but... Uh, it turns out there's a lot of uh, great folk theology that runs around the life of the church. And I think we long to create a theology that is true for everyone all the time. Amen? Like, how about this little piece of theology? Wouldn't it be awesome if I could say to you this morning, listen, God has a blessing for you, and all you need to do is, is invest your seed of faith. And so if you will put $10 in the offering plate today, you will all receive $100. Amen? Well, that's awesome, isn't it? That would be awesome. I don't know how spiritual it is, but it's a great investment plan. And so when you stop and you start to think about that, you, you, know, you have to stop and go, well, I suppose there is a context in which that might be true. I suppose that sometimes, you know, maybe an act of faith on our part does allow and plant a seed and open a door I, I, I don't know I just know that it doesn't apply to every single person all the time even though it's talked about as if it would and then here's the thing it can't be a gracious witness if it's not true I, I wish it were true that anyone who was sick could come and be prayed over and be healed I think God heals people I don't know how it all works. I, I don't know how the methodology, I don't know what's all going on in there. I just know it doesn't work for everyone all the time, every time. And we've got to be honest about that, don't we? I mean, you can build a church. In fact, you can build a network. It turns out you can build an empire by preaching this stuff. By, by acting like one size fits all. This is how it is, and God will do that for every single human on the planet. So just bring your money and bring your needs and whatever all that is. And we will continue to perpetuate this idea that God never wants anyone to be sick and he never wants anyone to die and everyone is going to be okay. Except it's not true. And we have to walk this journey of life, which is sometimes 
really wonderful, joyful things, and sometimes there are tragic, horrible things. But we are gracious witnesses in the midst of all of that. Amen? And we got to tell the truth. Frederick Beekner, in talking about this topic and relating it to what happens to a minister, writes these words. And I love this quote. I use it a lot. Switching on the lectern light and clearing his throat, the preacher speaks both the word of tragedy and the word of comedy because they are both of them of the truth and because Jesus speaks them both. Blessed be he. The preacher tells the truth by speaking of the visible absence of God. Because if he doesn't see and own up to the absence of God in the world, then he's the only one there who doesn't see it. And who then is going to take him seriously when he tries to make real what he claims also to see as the invisible presence of God in the world? Sin and grace... Absence and presence, tragedy and comedy, they divide the world between them. And where they meet head on, the gospel happens. Let the preacher preach the gospel of their preposterous meeting as the high, unbidden, hilarious thing that it is. You see, you and I, when we are called to be gracious witnesses, we are called to just tell the truth. This is how it's going in my life. This is what happened to me. Some things are wonderful and good, and I felt God answered prayer and made a significant change in my life. And this didn't work out the way I'd hoped and prayed. But where these things meet is where the gospel thrives. We're not afraid of real life. We're not afraid of the contradictions. We live in this space of truth. Finally, number seven, be fruitful. You will know the tree by its fruit. I love that in this section of teaching that we come to this moment in which we're talking about what does it mean to be a gracious wisdom? I've been asking you this question. Is this descriptive of you? How often? I don't know about you, but we're not that honest with ourselves. Amen? Okay. I'll, I'll pull that in a little bit. I'm not very honest with myself. Uh, I think I am. But I'm very subjective about me. Understand? So let me give you one example. Um, I don't know if you know this about me, but I like food. I'm a, I'm a foodie. I'm a, I am very entertained by food. I grew up in a home where nothing else was allowed. You, you know, we, you couldn't, I mean, we had a lot of rules. You couldn't dance and you couldn't go to movies and you couldn't, you know, you couldn't do a lot, but you could eat. And boy, did we eat. Isn't that true of church in general? Don't do anything, but we're having a potluck. Come on. So I've always sort of, you know, fought that battle. And uh, I have lots of theories about it. Now, one of my theories is when you're young, you can eat anything you want, and you don't gain any weight. But God saves all of those calories for you. <laughs> Amen? Amen? And someday later, you'll eat nothing, and he'll go, oh, there you go. I've had, I've had water and protein, and I'm not losing weight. And God's like, yeah, well, you got a, there's a whole bank vault full of calories still. Remember that midnight run to the pizza parlor? Here you go. So sometimes, you know, I, I see my weight cycle a little bit, and, and I like to be dishonest with myself about that. Anybody else? Yes. Yeah. Somebody said this morning, hey, your jacket looks nice. And I said... 
I'm just lying to myself about... What I find is when I'm in the upward part of the cycle, if I layer up... I mean, don't you ever get up in the morning and put on the shirt and you go, yeah, that's not going to work. <laughs> then you slip on a jacket and you step back a step and you go, all right. <laughs> because we've learned the high level of subjectivity and grading ourselves on how we're doing. Now, they've invented this thing called a scale which you can stand on, and it gives you an accurate readout of where you actually are in your journey. I do not have the emotional strength for that. <laughs> I'd rather kind of turn and squint and, oh, yeah, that's not bad. <laughs> I'm pretty well disguised. And isn't that true of how we behave ourselves? No, I'm nice. No, I'm salty. And that's not the same thing as being salt. I'm pretty sure I'm the light of the world. Are we really objective in that analysis? So Jesus looks at us after giving us all these instructions and says, just so you know, it's not about your opinion about yourself. A tree is known by its fruit. It's known by its fruit. It's not about what you think about what you're doing in respect to being a gracious witness. It's about what fruit is getting born in the life of the relationships in the world in which you live. Because a good tree bears good fruit. And that fruit shows up. It shows up in relationships. It shows up everywhere. Or it doesn't. Or there's bad fruit. And notice what he says. Any tree that doesn't bear good fruit... He doesn't say, so if you're going through life and some days you bear good fruit and some days you bear bad fruit. He's very explicit. A good tree bears good fruit. A bad tree bears bad fruit. A tree that bears no fruit. <clears throat> Isn't this our commission? Isn't this who we are called to be? That we are invited into this space where Jesus is articulating... If you want to experience the kingdom of heaven, you don't have to wait until you die. You can live out as a gracious witness, the salt of the earth, the light of the world, a doer of good deeds, who, who impact people so that they give praise to your Father in heaven, discerning. Careful in what we think, say, and do. And if we live this way, we are living out the kingdom of heaven. Oh, yeah, there's another day coming. But we're invited now to be the kingdom. What is the prayer? Stuck right here in the middle. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. When I die someday. No, no. On earth, as it is in heaven. And when he comes to the end of this great teaching, he says these words. Whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise person who builds their house on solid rock. And the storm comes, and the wind blows, and the rain falls, and the house stands firm. But whoever hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice 
is like a foolish person who builds their house on sand. And the storm comes and the rain falls and the wind blows and the house falls flat. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. God, would you help us? As we think about what it means to be a gracious witness, it's very difficult to think about the elements contained here and not feel some sense of guilt or loss. So I'm asking that you would remind us that you are not the God of guilt. You are the God of conviction and redemption, longing only to touch places in our hearts and lives that need transformation. And I pray that as we close, whether it's simply responding during the song or maybe seeking out one of our prayer counselors, that each of us would be responding, surrendering, letting go. You've reminded us that you treasure and value the poor in spirit, those who recognize that we need you to come beside us to allow your strength to be made perfect in our weakness. And so as we close, I pray that you would hear our prayers. I pray that you would hear our response. We seek you in Jesus' name. And everybody said together, will you stand as we respond? Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.